Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Water Cooler. We're excited to be with you this week. We've got a busy, busy week in sports. The World Series has wrapped up. The college football playoffs has just announced their rankings uh, previously. And NBA is about to start its in-season tournament. So we've got a lot of news to get to. I'm excited to talk about it. Before we get into it, though, let me just remind you all to follow the podcast on millions.co. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, X. Be sure to go to Millions, look at our merch. We've got some cool options for y'all, hats, sweatshirts, all that good stuff. So be sure to check us out at all of those places. Listen to us anywhere podcasts can be listened to. And all that being said, let's get into the biggest sporting news of the week, which is the Texas Rangers are your 2023 World Series champions. So going into last week, it was a split series. And I said that game three would be the pivotal game. And that turned out to be the case. The Rangers took game three, three to one. Then they quickly followed that up with two more wins to get the gentleman sweep four to one over the Diamondbacks. Now game three was three to one. Game four was an eleven to seven win. And game five, by that point, it was a foregone conclusion essentially who would win the series. But the Rangers was were dominant. They won five to nothing. And honestly, I looked at some of the highlights. I was looking at the stats on baseball reference and pure and simple. I think this series kind of just came down to who hit more home runs because despite what the win column would reflect, statistically, this was a very even series. The Diamondbacks actually had a better batting average overall than the Rangers. They had two less RBIs and their pitching had more strikeouts and only allowed one more earned run. So looking at all of that, you would think that it would be a relatively competitive close-cut series. But the biggest statistical difference was that the Diamondbacks had five less home runs than the Rangers did. And I think those five home runs were what made the crucial difference in the series. I mean, aside from just getting hits when they matter the most, being able to knock in runs and one at bat you can't really overestimate the importance of that and it's just one of those things where sometimes they hit it and it goes out of the park there's nothing you can really do to game plan what kind of pitch is going to be a home run and what's not I mean even the home runs themselves were relatively evenly distributed I say relatively because Corey Seager, the World Series MVP shortstop for the Rangers, he did make up for three of the Rangers' eight home runs. But even that being said, his batting average is only 286. So aside from his three home runs, he mostly was either hitting a home run or he wasn't hitting. He had three RBIs and six hits, three of which were home runs. So, I mean, it looked like the Rangers were just either hitting it long or not hitting. 
And unfortunately for the Diamondbacks, they hit it long more often than not. So Corey Seager, in his victory speech, he mocked the Astros. So it looks like there might be some shades of a Texas baseball rivalry brewing. But in the post-game conference for when the Astros won the division, they made something to the effect of that nobody thought the Astros could win the division, but here they are. And so Corey Seager basically reiterated that except he said nobody thought the Rangers could win the World Series, but here we are. So on the whole, a very interesting MLB playoff in that none of the top teams made it to the World Series. It was all middle-seeded teams, and really none of the series were all that close except for the Diamondbacks and the Phillies. So as far as drama, there wasn't really a whole much of it outside of that one series. But, I mean, it shows you what modern-day baseball is like. I mean, if you look at the just win-loss record aside, if you just look at the games, you had one game that was 3-1, and the next game was 11-7, to and then the game after that was 5 to nothing. Like, modern-day baseball, it's gotten to be a very high-scoring affair, but it also can be just as low-scoring as traditional baseball, and I mean, I really think that adds a lot of variety to the game. <laughs> you never know if you're going to tune in to watch a 2-1 to pitch fest or if you're going to watch an 11-7 to slug fest, which I think if you're a baseball purist, you're probably not a big fan of that. But for what it's worth, it probably does add more excitement, add more viewership to the game. It'll probably be a while before the um, – ratings for the World Series come out, and this is just complete conjecture, but if I had to guess, I do think that this World Series will probably be one of the better watched of recent memory, just because, one, a Texas team was involved, and that never hurts your ratings. Two, with MLB having their deal with Max to stream playoff games, I think that'll do a lot to help ratings. Now that a lot of people are cutting cable, it does make it harder to have good ratings when half of the people that would be potential viewers don't have access to watch the game if you don't have a streaming service or if they only have streaming services. So by moving the World Series to streaming, I think it does wonders for reaching new audiences, but I'll be interested to see how that shakes out. And on the whole, interesting postseason, unfortunate for us Braves fans out here. But better luck next year. And if nothing else can be taken away from it, it is that top-seeded teams, if they're going to stick with the one-week bye, you don't have any excuses for not coming at that next round with your all because you know what the pitfalls of it are. You had an idea of it last year. This year solidified those concerns. So you're going to have to find a way to adjust. And hopefully, if you're a top-level contending team, you have the willpower and have what it takes to make that adjustment. And that's what separates the great teams from the good teams. So hopefully, 
those top-seeded teams do make that adjustment going up. Now, on to college football. The college football playoff poll released earlier in the week, and it pretty much reflected the AP poll with the minor difference that it had Ohio State up one over Georgia, which I think is fair just because they have a much stronger schedule to this point. I mean, Georgia would probably, might probably beat Ohio State, but just based off the teams they've played to get their undefeated record this year, I think it's valid to have Ohio State first. But the most interesting game this week, at least for me, and I will readily admit I might be biased, was Alabama beating LSU 42-28. to And I've been griping about it all season, so I'm not going to waste a lot of breath on it just to avoid being repetitive. But Jalen Milrow is still Alabama's best running back. He led the team in rushing yards. He had four touchdowns, all from rushing. He did not throw a single passing touchdown this entire game. And he said before the game, somebody asked him uh, what he worked on in the offseason. He said he spent the entire offseason working on his throwing because he knew he's such a good runner that it would just be a waste of time to train in that area because he's already that good. So he practiced throwing. Well, you would not know it from the way he plays because the couple times he did throw the football, they were pretty pitiful. There was one part in particular, and this was the game was either tied or Alabama was up one, but there was a crucial moment where there was a wide open pass play and he threw it about five feet over the receiver's head. And if that's what he gets after a whole summer of working on his throwing, I suggest he finds a new throwing coach. Now, I'm not saying this to keep blame onto Jalen Milrow. He played absolutely fantastic last night overall. But if he's going to be a national championship contending quarterback, he really needs to work on the throwing game. Because as big of a success as running quarterbacks have grown to be able to be, it has yet to be proven in college at least. Honestly, even in the NFL, a running quarterback can lead a team to a championship. And it's kind of like Victor Webanyama, me saying that a 7-4 player can't be an all-time great. I will happily admit to being wrong when that happens, but until then, I will sit confidently with history on my side and saying that running quarterbacks can't win championships. So... With that being said, Jalen Milrow needs to work on his arm. Now, he wasn't the only quarterback that was running his tail off yesterday because LSU quarterback Jaden Daniels actually had more rushing yards than Jalen Milrow did. And honestly, as much as I prefer quarterbacks who throw, I was having a great time watching their duel until uh, Daniels went down due to concussion protocol around the third quarter. Now, this game, it was really a back-and-forth fun game to watch, but in the second half, Bama was firmly in control, and it was the most efficient game I believe they've played all season against real competition. 
the scoring was up. The penalties were down. They had a lot of third down conversions, which is what you really want to see. And it's just really been good to be able to watch them finally start to fire on all cylinders when they're nearing down the home stretch of the season. Now, unfortunately, despite beating the number 14 ranked team, it did nothing to improve their rankings in the AP poll. They're still ranked eighth. The college football playoff poll won't get updated for a couple more days. But if I had to guess, they'll stay around the same spot. Now, one last point to mention about the game from yesterday was that Will Reichert went 0 for 2 on relatively easy kicks for his standard. And that's not to, you know, heap a lot of unearned blame on Will Reichert. But it's just sad that his last major game at Bryant-Denny ended in two whiffs after having arguably the greatest kicking career in college uh, football history. He actually passed the record for most successful kicks of all time last week. So, or last time Alabama played, I guess, against Tennessee. But, so he's one of the all-time great kickers, and it's just sad that his last major game ended with two whiffs. But hopefully he can regroup and find himself and go back to being regular Will. But we'll see when they play Kentucky next week. Now, Georgia beat Missouri 30-21 to in a game that was pretty down to the wire as far as Georgia goes, at least. Uh, Carson Bett did a good job, had a high conversion rate. Had a lot of yards thrown, roughly like the low 200s to mid-200s. And UGA starts off strong on their hardest stretch of the season. Now, next week, they move on to their biggest challenge of the season, at least rankings-wise. They play number 10 Ole Miss. And if they can make it through Ole Miss and Tennessee without losing, I think, they should slide back up to number one on the college football playoff poll. But we'll see. I think these next two games will really show what UGA is made of. I mean, obviously, a 26-game win streak and two national championships show they're made of some tough stuff. But for a three-peat, they're going to have to reach down within themselves and find a will to win that most franchises, teams, programs don't have. And the next two games will be very telling on that front. Now, Michigan beat Purdue 41-13, to and there's not really a whole lot to say about that, except that next week Michigan will be tested when they play number nine Penn State. And Michigan and Ohio, Florida State and Georgia are the top four right now. And I really don't see much shakeup between now and the last week of the season. I mean, Florida State whooped Pittsburgh yesterday, and they don't play any more ranked teams for the rest of the season. So unless they just get majorly upset, then I think they're pretty safe. Uh, the only real major shakeups that can happen is if UGA loses one of their next two games, Michigan loses to Penn State, or whatever happens when Michigan and Ohio State play. 
So those three factors, if you're just following uh, potential playoff matchups in college football, those are the three things to look for. UGA, Ole Miss, and Tennessee, those that two-game stretch, and Michigan against Penn State and Michigan against Ohio. Aside from that, I really don't see any possibilities of a major shakeup in the regular season. Now, in the postseason, this is, as an SEC homer, what is super exciting for me is it's looking like we might get UGA and Alabama again for the SEC championship. Now, they both teams still have to go, well, Alabama has to go undefeated for the rest of the season for that to happen. UGA pretty solidly has the SEC East locked up, so they're going to be there no matter what. But Bama is looking likely for the SEC championship, and if UGA can go undefeated but loses to Bama in the SEC championship, that will be a rough day for the college football playoff committee. Now, as far as that matchup goes, UGA is definitely the favorite, and I would say they're probably a 65 to 70% favorite, but it's not a foregone conclusion. I think if Alabama plays against UGA like they did against LSU, they can beat just about anybody. So that's another thing to look out for, and college football is finally getting into the home stretch. And it's starting to get exciting, so everybody buckle up and be ready. Now, as college football enters the home stretch, the NBA is entering the opening stretch with their first ever in-season tournament. And I cannot stress to you enough how stupid of an idea the in-season tournament is. So... First off, the only reason the in-season tournament exists is because the 82-game NBA season has led to most of the players not giving two craps about the first probably four months of the season. Just because they phone it in half the time, they don't care, they can give 50% effort and still make the playoffs, and... Especially, the NBA is a very top-heavy league. So if you're a team, like let's take the Bucks for example, who you know before the season even starts, the Bucks are going to make the playoffs minus some grievous injury. So if you're the Bucks and you know that you have arguably the most talented team in the Eastern Conference, and all you have to do is make it to the playoffs, and once you're in, your talent will put you over just about anybody, regardless, really, of where your seating is within the playoffs. Then all you have to do is really just phone it in. When, like, if you just phone it in and you're the Bucks, you'll still probably win at least 45, 50 games, just if you phone it in the entire season. Now you have to selectively try, you know, You'll phone it in this game against the Hornets, but you'll try in this game against the Warriors. And so doing that, it'll put you at like 55 wins. And you'll solidly coast to a upper seed team in the Eastern Conference, and then you can actually try once the playoffs roll around. 
So that's kind of the mindset of NBA players and how they've been just wasting everybody's time, essentially, in the regular season. That's why you see load management starting to be a thing because they're such a waste of their time, they're deciding to not even play the games. And so to combat this, Adam Silver has made the in-season tournament in order to try to incentivize them to try harder in the regular season. The only problem with that is there's no reward for winning the in-season tournament aside from an extra $50,000 to each player, and you get the NBA Cup. So if you're trying to incentivize them to try harder, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they just really like money that much. But if you're making, and the obvious, this only applies to the top-level players. I mean, to a bench-level like player, like if you're the 10th man on the roster, $500,000 is a lot of money to you. But you're also not good enough to where whether you try hard or not doesn't make much of a difference to the team. The only people that really phone it in are the superstar level players. And those are the players that $500,000 essentially means nothing to them. If you take Kevin Durant, for example, just as a good idea of somebody who's known to phone it in in the regular season a good bit. His net worth is, let's see, actually, Kevin Hart. Kevin Durant is worth $300 million. So do you think the prize of 500000 is really going to make him try that much harder in the regular season? Call me skeptical, but I don't see it. Now, a lot of people said that a good incentive would have been to – Say, whoever wins the in-season tournament gets an immediate ticket to the NBA playoffs. Now, I think if you get lucky somehow and win the tournament, like, I don't know how much I agree with that logic, but if you're – okay. I, I think the tournament in general is stupid and is, should not exist. But if you're going to take it and it does exist, I think that would be a good beneficial incentive to try to get these people to try harder. But it might also be counterproductive because, let's say, the Warriors or the Clippers go all out for the next month. And then they immediately, you know what, we punched our ticket to the playoffs. Then they're just not going to try as hard again, and you're back at the same place that you were. So, I mean, really, aside from cutting down the amount of games, I don't see a way to incentivize players trying harder in meaningless games aside from just doing what the league already did in the offseason and crack down on load management so just on that principle as a whole i think the in-season tournament is stupid overly complicated and a waste of time because it's not really doing much to correct problem it was initiated to correct and the reason I say it's overly complicated is because what the way they set up the bracket for this and I've read over the article explaining it three times and I still really have no idea how this tournament works so they took both conferences and they divided them up into three sections and the teams that are in each section 
were assigned by a random lottery. Now, the reason that's stupid is because the conferences were already divided up into three divisions. And it just seems like if you're going to do that, why not just make each section the same as the divisions within the conference instead of having three sections, A, B, and C, that are full of just teams randomly thrown together. Now, I think the division approach would have been better just because there's really not much. Um, divisions in basketball don't mean much. So it would have been a good way to revive interest in the divisional system because like, the overall record is what's important in the NBA playoffs. So, for example, you take the South Atlantic Division and or the Southeast Division. The way it works is just the league looks at the overall record. So right now, the top team in the Southeast Division is the Hawks, and they have a 4-2 and two record. But they're the third-seeded team in the Eastern Conference because the top two-seeded teams are both in the Atlantic Division, the Celtics and the 76ers. And it is worth noting that the Celtics are the only team still undefeated. But instead, I wish the NBA took the baseball approach where if you win your division, you're out in the playoffs and your seed reflects your overall record. But the play, like the division, like just your ticket. And the second place teams don't make the playoffs unless they make it into the wild card. The NBA playoffs does not have a wild card. It is purely at the end of the season. We're looking at all the records and whatever eight teams have the best records there in the playoffs. It doesn't matter what the divisional divide is within that. And I just think that it kind of makes divisions meaningless if, I mean, I don't know if it's statistically possible, but theoretically you could have five of the eight teams from the same division if they were all just super loaded. So I think that the, the way they divided up the instant tournament would have been a great way to make divisions matter, and they decided not to do that. And instead, just do random lotteries, and it just doesn't make sense. And then once they do this um, random lottery, they have two different brackets, and all the teams play. And it, I mean, obviously, <laughs> they have two different brackets, and once you lose, you go to the other bracket, and it's just a mess. There are separate uh, winners' purses for each team. There's going to be a MVP of the tournament. It just seems like a lot of complicated stuff for a tournament that means nothing. And the reason it's so complicated is because Adam Silver lifted the idea from soccer, which, don't get me wrong, I know there are a lot of soccer fans out there in the world, and as much as the NBA has expanded into Europe, it might make sense from a global marketing standpoint to try to pitch European-style tournaments 
to them in a basketball form instead of a soccer form. But one thing that is distinctly American is that the sport of soccer has not taken hold here like it is in the rest of the world. And most of the American public doesn't really care for soccer. And so to take a league that is mostly based, despite it is having more international appeal, is mostly an American-based company, you trying to use the format of a European sport that most Americans are apathetic towards just doesn't make a lot of sense. So clearly not a fan of the in-season tournament, but it is starting this week, so we'll see what players have their lives changed by that $500,000. Aside from that, we've got James Harden making his Clippers debut tomorrow against the Knicks. The poor Knicks. It seems like everybody just knows their Trump change, and so it's an easy way for James Harden to get a good, feel-good moment in his first game as a Clipper. And this doesn't surprise me, but at the same time, it kind of does. Harden, Westbrook, Paul George, and Kawhi will all be in the starting lineup with uh, Zubak as the center. So it'll be interesting to see how all those play styles mesh. I mean, I guess the best way to do it